0: Let's listen to God's Word as it's read. I'm going to begin Deuteronomy 10, verses 16 through 18. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 10. 12 through 18. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And then one final passage from the prophet Jeremiah, 22, 13 through 16. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice. Who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. Who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms. Who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me? declares the lord this is the word of the lord okay let's pray father this morning we come into your presence and ask for your help as we study the scripture together we ask that you would be with us and draw near to us through the spirit ministering to our hearts even this morning we ask that you would help us to hear your word but not just to be hearers of your word but to be doers of your word and god we um Need your spirit to do that for us this morning. Because on our own, we are too blown by the wind back and forth. We are too easily distracted. We're too easily set off course, the course of following Jesus faithfully. And so we rely on and trust in Jesus as he offers himself to us in the gospel. We rely on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit ministering to us even now. And we ask that you would come and minister to us this morning through this scripture, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, unless you've lived under a rock for the last couple of years, you probably know that our society... I'm turning this off. beliefs, whether you're a Christian or not, to keep your personal beliefs out of the debate or to keep things neutral. But it's become increasingly clear that that's actually not possible. You can't really debate important issues of justice without your own moral presuppositions, without your own ethical commitments, no matter what you believe, coming out. And uh, Michael Sandel is a professor at Harvard University. He's written a really justice. And I want you to listen to this quote of his. He's making a similar point. Listen to what he says. Asking democratic citizens to leave their moral and religious convictions behind when they enter the public realm may seem a way of ensuring toleration and mutual respect. In practice, however, the opposite can be true. Deciding important public questions while pretending to a neutrality that cannot be achieved is a recipe for backlash, A politics emptied of substantive moral engagement makes for an impoverished civic life. Now I think Sandel is correct. And so using that idea sort of as a starting point, we're going to take the next four weeks, as I mentioned, and look at the biblical notion of justice. The biblical notion of justice. And then we're going to apply it to three massively important, massively important temporary issues. Now, this is, you need to know, a bit of an out-of-the-ordinary thing for us to do at Christ Church. Uh, Our typical diet of biblical teaching is just to go straight through various books of the Bible, and we've also really reason is because me as your pastor and our elders SHUT sure. UP! Why we want to talk about these topics and the graphic of the topics, the topics that we're going to look at in particular. Thank you, Patrick. Are what a great deacon, by the way. Thank you very much. Um, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, really, really hot tuck, hot button issues. That's what I was talking about. Um, so here are the, the issues we're going to talk about today: the biblical idea of justice, and then abortion the issue of racial reconciliation, and the Me Too movement. Those are the three topics we're going to cover. So I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender. I'm going to make all of you mad, I'm sure. Actually, seriously, that's not our intent. But I will ask you to come with open ears and be willing to submit to what the Scripture teaches and like the Bereans, study them for yourselves and let's think together about these things. But today, we're going to have an overview on the biblical idea Of justice, And here's the big point. Main idea is this. Christians should care about issues of justice in our age because God cares about them. That's the idea. Christians should care about issues of justice in our age because God cares about them. Three big picture topics. God loves justice. That's the first point. The second point is that God holds leaders and the powerful accountable to do justice. And the third point is that those who love God should care about the things that God cares about. Okay, so that's where we're going. So first, God loves justice. God loves justice. Um, That Deuteronomy 10 text that I read is one of many examples in the Bible where God describes himself as a God who deeply cares about justice. Look in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 10. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. And then he describes himself. He's not partial and he doesn't take bribes. And he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now, um, when I introduce myself in social settings and someone asks me, what do you do? I will say, I'm Luke. I'm a pastor at Christ Church San Antonio. And sometimes, maybe, when you introduce me to one of your friends, you'll say, this is my pastor, Pastor Luke. If I were to give you one of my business cards, my business card will say on it, Luke Evans, Pastor Christ Church, San Antonio. That's my business card. That's describes something about me. It's not the most important thing about me. I'm a child of God. I'm husband of Marianne. I'm father to three children, but it is something significant about me. I am a pastor. God on his business card has, he is a God who executes justice. It's a part of his very identity. It's a part of The character of God's own being. He's a God who loves justice and who cares about justice. So let's think about what that means. What is justice? My definition of justice is this it is the action of God that promotes the equality and flourishing of all humanity. It's the action of God that promotes the equality and flourishing of all humanity. And even in this Deuteronomy passage, you can see that there are two linked components of justice. First, justice is concern. It's concern that people are treated fairly and equitably. Justice is about the fair and equitable treatment of all people. Verse 17, God is not partial and he takes no bribe. Now that is all over the Bible. God describes himself in that way. God does not favor the powerful and the wealthy. He's not going to hand out favors to those who can do things for him. Now, in the culture in which Deuteronomy was written, city leaders would meet in what was called the city gate. Literally, the gate of the city is where often uh, legislation would be enacted and deals would be made and business would be transacted. The leaders of the city, the powerful of the city, would meet in the city gates And the city gate was often, in almost every ancient city, a place where bribery was very common, a place where partiality was very common. In fact, the way business was transacted was probably not too dissimilar from the way it's often transacted today. Those with wealth, those with power, those with connections can get the things done that they want to get done. Now, God is saying here that part of My character is God, he's saying. Part of justice is to show complete fairness and equity to all people. So that's one part of justice. The second part of justice is concern for the most vulnerable and powerless in a given society. Verse 18, he executes justice for who? The fatherless, the orphan, and the widow. Now, Nicholas Wolterstorff is a Christian philosopher who has called the the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable. In most cultures, throughout most of human history, those types of people are the most powerless in a given society. And what God is saying is that justice is coming to the aid of those who are unable to defend themselves. God is saying, that is a part of the fabric of my character, the passage of Psalm, from Psalm 10 that we read makes this point as well. If you can flip there. In Psalm 10, we read the psalmist cry out to God for justice. He says, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. In other words, do something. And what does he want God to do? He says, forget not the afflicted. Don't forget the afflicted, the powerless, the oppressed. And then he says, you don't don't forget me. You note mischief and vexation. I love that word, vexation. We should use that word more. Vexation, God notes it, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless, verse 14. So justice is fair and equitable treatment of all people, and it is concern for the most vulnerable and powerless in a society. Now, God cares about that. That is part of who God is. And the Bible is full of examples of God acting in that way. In fact, one of the primary examples is sort of the main event in the Old Testament, the Exodus itself. When God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt, part of the reasoning that God himself gives to Moses and to the people of Israel is that I see, go to Exodus 3, Verse 7, verse 9, I see the oppression that the Egyptians and that Pharaoh is giving to my people, the people of Israel, and I'm going to redeem them. Yes, there's metaphorical stuff going on in the Exodus. It's a metaphor for our greater oppression of sin, absolutely. But it's not just metaphorical. They really were in bondage. (laughs) They actually were slaves, and God actually cares to redeem them out of slavery. So God is just. God loves justice. We need to hear right now, I think, that that's actually really good news. That's that's actually a part of the gospel. God's justice is good news. Why? Well, because it means that everything that is wrong in this world is going to be made right. It means that one day, God is going to come back in the person of Jesus in the renewal of all things. That's a part of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has come once, and in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, anyone who trusts in him by faith can have their sins forgiven and a new identity as a son and daughter of God. Amen. But another part of the gospel is that one day Christ is going to come back, and he's going to make all things new, and all of the evil in this world that for now, unknown to us, God allows to continue, is going to be squashed. That's good news, especially for those of us who have been victimized by evil, and by oppression, especially for those of us who are powerless. Justice is good news. And, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that all of us really want justice. We all long for justice deep down. It's a part of the core of what it means to be human. Um, when I play with my kids or when I listen to my kids play, one of the things that I'll often hear after not too many minutes is, that's not fair. And you know what? Marianne and I did not have to teach our kids to say that. It just kind of comes with the kit of being human. We have this innate sense, right, of equity, an innate sense of justice. There's a game that um, my kids and I have been playing some called Fortnite. It's like this cultural phenomenon. All the 12-year-olds are now paying attention. And uh, cheating happens in Fortnite, It's unbelievable. And Nate and I are like, I can't believe this. these guys guys can hack into these games and cheat. And I get so mad because I like to play Fortnite every now and then with the kids. And uh, it's just bad. People don't like that. We don't like cheating. We don't like unfairness because we all have this innate sense of justice. We all want it. We all long for it. And so the gospel is good news because the gospel says there is no act of injustice that God is not going to take care of. There's not ever a time where any evildoer is ultimately going to get away with evil. All of our longings for the right thing to be done will be met. That's part of the Christian message. That is part of the gospel. God proves himself to be just in Jesus' death and resurrection and in Jesus' second coming, which we all wait for. That's the day when he will finalize justice. So God loves justice, and for you and for me, that's a really good thing. That's really good news. Second, God loves justice... And God holds the powerful accountable to do justice. Jeremiah 22 um, makes this point for us. God cares that societies and nations and governments and corporations and the powerful act with justice. That's what the prophets of the Old Testament especially emphasized repeatedly in their writings. Now, obviously, God wants everyone to act with justice. But the emphasis in the scriptures is often on the powerful because the injustices or the justices that they commit go a long way towards determining the moral fabric of a given society. So look at this Jeremiah passage. Here God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah and he's speaking to the king of Judah, this guy named Shalom, who's one of the last kings of Judah before they get exiled to Babylon, and he's a bad king. His dad, Josiah, was a great king. And here Jeremiah is telling Shalom, listen, your dad was good, and I expect the same of you. Listen to what he says. Woe to the king who builds big houses, basically, by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and doesn't pay him his wages, who says, I'm going to build myself a big house with spacious upper rooms, paneling it, you know, with all the fixings. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then, when he did that, it went well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Now, this is the most important part. Is not this to know me? God warns Shalom here. Not to use his power unjustly and unfairly. Not to use his power in an oppressive way. Because to really know the one true God implies that you are acting justly. Especially if you're in a position of power. So doing justice against this backdrop of crimes, really, it's not terribly complicated. I mean, it means kings should do the following. Don't exploit poor people. Don't cheat the poor and line your own pockets through oppression. Quit snuffing out the weak in order to get their land or their stuff. So no king, no, no Israelite, no Christian for that matter, who is guilty of these sins, God is saying, could possibly, in a sort of covenantal, salvific sense, know the God of Israel. Because to know the God of Israel is to seek to obey him. And so he's saying here that rulers and leaders go a long way toward determining whether a society is just. And that was especially true in ancient cultures when the king was like the judge, jury, and executioner. The king was like the legislative, judicial, and uh, executive branches all rolled into one. The king had immense power in the ancient world. And so God is speaking here to his people, to the king of his people, the Old Testament nation of Israel. But the principle applies more broadly. God doesn't just give these kinds of directives to his people. God gives these kinds of directives to all people. There are vast portions of the prophetic writings in which God calls the nations of the world to account for the way they treat the vulnerable and for their theft and their lying and their murdering. Just as an example, Isaiah all the way from chapter 13 through chapter 21 you want some afternoon reading, there you go. Isaiah 13 through 21, God calls the nations to account. Really, there's two big sins that God calls people to account for. One is the sin of idolatry, false worship, and the other is the sin of oppression, mistreating the vulnerable and the poor. Now, the reason I make this point in particular is because this point is still true today, okay? God is deeply concerned with all people living justly. But God also cares deeply about the injustices in society and the leaders that foster them. So the laws and the policies and the practices of a given nation, of all the nations of the world, those things matter to God. Those things are not neutral. And that's especially true when laws and policies foster injustice and evil and this should not go this should go without saying but it needs to be said god is for social justice god is not for social injustice god likes social justice social justice is a good thing that concept should not be controversial christians should be for social justice but that concept is controversial and just real quick the reason that's controversial is because historically especially in the 20th century The church separated, or excuse me, the church conflated the gospel itself with social justice. In other words, the mainline church, the left leaning church in America, especially in the early 20th century, would say that the gospel is caring for poor people, the gospel is making sure people aren't oppressed. Now, that is not the gospel, the gospel is news about what Jesus has done for sinners. But that news actually makes a difference for the way we think about social justice. So social justice is not the gospel, but it's connected to the gospel. The gospel produces a desire for social justice in those who believe it. And when the church and Christians are living this out in faithful ways, it actually really can make a difference. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of the great examples of this. He was a 20th century German Christian. He was a pastor. He was an author. He was a martyr. And he was a spy in Nazi Germany. And um, Bonhoeffer was one of the few German Christians who spoke out against the atrocities and the evils of the Third Reich and the Nazis and Hitler from the earliest days of their assuming power in Germany in the 20th century. And one of the things that Bonhoeffer famously says is that he who does not cry out for the Jews cannot sing Gregorian chants. And what that means is you can go to your little worship service and chant with all the German Christians, but if you don't care about what's happening in our society, you're a hypocrite. And Bonhoeffer actually had a significant impact. No, he didn't stop the Holocaust, but he did what he could with the things that God had given him To work for justice. So God cares about justice and he cares about the leaders and the powerful in a given society acting and living justly. Okay, last point. Those who love God should care about the things that God cares about. God cares about justice. (laughs) He holds the powerful of the world accountable and those who love the one true God should also care about justice. We see that back in that Deuteronomy passage. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16 says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Now, that's very colorful language uh, that simply is saying, don't just obey me with external religiosity. Rather, commit your heart and your life to me as a response to my grace. And part of that commitment looks like Pursuing justice and fairness and care for the vulnerable in our world. You see that in the very same passage in Deuteronomy verses 12 and 13 of chapter 10. He says, God says, The Lord requires of you to fear the Lord, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, he tells us in verses 17 and 18 and 19. It means love the sojourner. Verse 19. For you were once sojourners. It means that you should care about being impartial and not taking bribes, just like God cares about that. Part of what it means to love and follow God is to pursue justice to the best of our abilities. So wrapping up, the Bible repeatedly tells us that if we just go through the religious motions without caring about the needy, without caring about injustices being addressed in our world— We're hypocrites. Jesus makes this point repeatedly to the religious establishment of his day. He says, if you don't love the poor and the needy, if you don't practice justice, it doesn't matter what you say. You don't love God. And so, it's important for us to consider these issues together. And I want to close with just one more idea and then a quick story, okay? And this idea is one of proximate justice proximate justice. What I mean by that is typically when Christians begin thinking about justice issues that they'll either get super fired up and they're like I'm going to end AIDS and slave trafficking tomorrow. That's my responsibility. You're not going to do that. You can't do that. I'm going to make sure there's no more racial injustice in the city of San Antonio beginning tomorrow. Well, no, you can't do that. I'm going to eliminate poverty. Nope, not going to happen. Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. I'm going to write a letter every day to my senator. Well, maybe, but maybe. Listen, proximate justice is the idea that what you are called to do is within your own spheres of influence, within your own spheres of living, work the best you are able to be fair and to care about those who are downtrodden. And if you're doing that, you're living justly. So we, there's a temptation for Christians often to want to way overreach. But there's also a temptation for us to want to underreach, to be like the Pharisees, to say, well, I show up at church every day, I read my Bible, it doesn't matter what, the, hap, what I think or what I do about some of these significant issues. Or to think, well, I can't fix it, so I'm not going to do anything. There's a balance there, Right? And that's what I want us to be thinking about. So I don't want us to leave this series thinking, okay, our job as a church is to, we don't want to overreach. But we also don't want to do nothing. So perhaps a goal would be for us to think biblically about these issues together and then to mobilize together in ways that are appropriate, reasonable, and that we have responsibility over. Okay, last thing. A story about this comes from, uh, Will and I were talking about this this morning, perhaps Steven Spielberg's masterpiece, the movie Schindler's List. If you haven't seen that, I've seen that movie one time. I couldn't see it again. <laughs> I saw it when I was like 13 or 14 years old. I was like, all right, that's enough. seen it. But it's a, it's a powerful movie, a profound movie, about this man named Oskar Schindler who uh, is a businessman in Nazi Germany and works closely with the Nazi government and Nazi officials and gets really, really wealthy. But he begins to see the horrors of the Holocaust very early on and is convicted by that. And so he works to alleviate that injustice, where he can. Now, he actually is a man with a good bit of power and wealth, and so Schindler's list is the list of 850 German Jews that he rescues from being sent to concentration camps. And in the very final scene, the climactic scene of that movie, Schindler's uh, right-hand man, a guy named Itzhak Stern, gives Schindler this, this ring, and all of the Jews that he has rescued from death or surrounding Schindler in the train station. And um, it's Stern gives Schindler the ring, and in the ring is a Hebrew inscription that says, whoever saves one life saves the world. Whoever saves one life saves the world. And what Schindler does when he receives this ring is begin to break down. And he starts to cry, and he says, I could have gotten more out. I didn't do enough. And he falls down on his knees, crying. I didn't do enough. I could have gotten more out. And Itzhak Stern places his hand on Schindler's head, and he says, you did so much. And then all of the Jews surround Schindler and embrace him. And, of course, the point made so powerfully there is that this man faithfully did what he could he faithfully did what he could to fight against injustice and evil in his day. And that's what I want you to do. That's what I should do. what so we as followers of Jesus are called to is to do all that we can to faithfully fight against injustice and evil in our day, knowing that Jesus is the one who is going to finally blot it all out when he comes back. So that's our vision and our goal for the next three weeks together. As we think about these important issues, what the scriptures have to tell us about them, and how we can biblically follow Jesus as we consider them, okay? So I hope to see you next week. We're going to tackle abortion. Let's pray.